Welcome to Star Trek Age of Discovery. I'm Adele Austin Anderson. And I'm Gary Anderson. And we're a married couple who are longtime fans of Star Trek. Today, Gary and I want to take the time to pay our respects to the passing of Nichelle Nichols. Yes, there have been many print, video, and social media tributes paid to her since her death was announced on July 30th. However, we felt none of those tributes provide the full scope of the remarkable life of this amazing woman. Thus, we wanted to attempt to address this gap with this homage. Our topics will include an overview of her formative years and early career as a dancer and singer, her entree into acting and the state of television during the 1960s, her experiences acting in the role of Uhura on the original series and the animated series, as well as how her portrayal affected Star Trek canon for years to come, her post-Star Trek life and career, and her legacy. So Gary, why don't we get started? Sure. Let's start off with the formative years and her early career. Nichelle Nichols was actually born Grace Dell Nichols to Samuel Earl and Lashia May Nichols in a predominantly black community of Robbins, Illinois, on December 28, 1932. Her paternal grandfather was a white Southerner who had married a black woman, causing a rift within his wealthy family. Nichelle was the third of six children. Her father, a factory worker, was elected mayor and chief magistrate for Robbins in 1929. Despite his success, the Nichols family would eventually move to an apartment in the Woodlawn neighborhood of Chicago. From an early age, Grace knew she wanted to be an entertainer and directed shows with kids in her neighborhood. Initially, she set her sights on being a ballerina. Her parents paid for lessons with dance schools within her community. However, when she reached the age of 14, her teachers felt she needed a more challenging venue. So her father arranged for her to audition for the prestigious Chicago Ballet Academy. When she arrived, the Academy's director told her father, a light-skinned black man, that they did not know his daughter was black. If they had known, uh, he was told, they would not have scheduled the audition because they did not accept black students. Since the, the director felt black people were more suitable for jazz and tap dancing. Interesting. <laughs> Despite the indignity experienced by Samuel and his daughter, her father convinced the ballet director to give young Grace an audition. After undergoing a rigorous test, Grace won a place at the academy. She studied ballet for two years while also learning Afro-Cuban dance styles from neighborhood teachers. While still a student at Inglewood High School, at the age of 14, she began performing in local clubs due to her four-octave vocal range. She met jazz legend Duke Ellington, who gave her a chance to tour with him and his orchestra. She signed with a manager who gave her the stage name Lynn Mayfair. Six months later, dissatisfied with the name, she asked her mother for advice for a replacement. Her mother suggested that she call herself Nichelle Nichols. The year 1951 proved to be a pivotal one in her life. 
Shortly after her 18th birthday, she married her dancing partner, Foster Johnson, a man 15 years her senior. The marriage ended quickly, but not before she became pregnant with her son, Kyle Johnson, who was subsequently born on August 14th. She graduated from Chicago's Inglewood High School, then resumed touring extensively throughout the United States, Canada, and Europe with Ellington's Orchestra and the Lionel Hampton Band as a singer and dancer. Later, she performed in various theatrical productions in Chicago and New York. The stage performances included the title role in Carmen Jones and a supporting appearance in Kicks and Company, a highly anticipated musical by civil rights activist Oscar Brown Jr. The latter show was scheduled to go to Broadway, but closed out of town in Chicago. Still, for Kicks and Company, she received her first nomination for Best Actress from the prestigious Sarah Siddons Society. The second nomination came when she joined the company of John Janae's The Blacks, a clown show. After moving to Los Angeles in the late 50s, Nichols supplemented her income with occasional modeling jobs. The attractive entertainer made her feature film debut with a brief appearance as a dancer in the musical Porgy and Bess in 1959, starring Sidney Poitier, Dorothy Dandridge, and Sammy Davis Jr. She continued working on the stage, including in shows such as The Roar of the Grease Paint, The Smell of the Crowd, For My People, and a production of James Baldwin's Blues for Mr. Charlie. In 1962, she returned to New York to serve as the understudy to Diane Carroll's leading role in the Richard Rogers musical, No Strings. So this is going to take us to 1960s television. So we know that in 1963, Nichols returned to Los Angeles looking for work in film and television. This was the year that she first met Gene Roddenberry. However, before we get into that story of the meeting between those two, we need to place it in its proper context by examining the conditions a black woman pursuing an entertainment career would have had to endure during this decade. During the politically restless decade, broadcast television attempted to shift from perpetuating racial stereotypes that had been created as far back as the early 19th century with the development of minstrelsy. In 1961, an African-American actor would largely be marginalized into a one-dimensional role, nearly always playing servants or providing some comic relief, or both. Eddie Anderson, who played Jack Benny's manservant Rochester on The Jack Benny Show, is a perfect example of this tradition. However, most black actors had to settle for guest appearances in a single episode. Yes, and gradually throughout the decade, a small band of black actors acquired recurring supporting roles in a few shows. Cecily Tyson made history as the first African-American female star of a television drama with her role as Secretary Jane Foster in East Side, West Side. 
the short-lived series lasted one season. It would be three years before another television production would make that attempt. All of the other television series that had reoccurring black actors were male. Ivan Dixon on Hogan's Heroes, Bill Cosby in I Spy, Greg Morris in Mission Impossible, Harry Rhodes in Daktari, Robert Hooks in NYPD Blue, Don Mitchell on Ironside, and Clarence Williams III in The Mod Squad. In the fall of 1968, actress Gail Fisher made her first appearance in the CBS detective series Mannix during the second season. She played receptionist Peggy Fair when Mannix left a detective agency and sets up shop as a private investigator. She became the second African-American woman after Nichelle Nichols of Star Trek to be shown prominently on weekly television. And in fact, Gary, Nichelle Nichols was offered the role of You mean to tell me she already had a job and she was offered a job on another show. Right, right. This was this was right before the third season right, of right, Star right, Trek right. that she was offered the show. But, you know, supposedly Gene Roddenberry would not release her from her contract. Yeah, that sounds like Roddenberry. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Prior to joining the cast of Star Trek, Nichols continued to seek a breakout opportunity. In 1964, she made a professional connection that would redirect the rest of her career. She was preparing to make her television debut in the episode of The Lieutenant, an hour-long drama featuring Gary Lockwood as the title character, Second Lieutenant William Tiberius Rice. Created by Gene Roddenberry, The Lieutenant explored the lives of enlisted Marines and officers at Camp Pendleton, the, the West Coast base for the U.S. Marine Corps. In the 21st episode, entitled To Set It Right, she was cast as the fiancé of a black Marine who had an ongoing riff with a white peer. The friction was racially motivated. Lieutenant Rice attempts to play peacemaker between the two platoon members. The Pentagon, who had served as an unpaid advisor to the show from the beginning, objected to the tone of the episode. They demanded that it not air. Roddenberry tried to get the NAACP to pressure the network into showing it. Eventually, the Pentagon cut all ties with the series. A week later, NBC canceled the show. Even though the episode never aired, film historian Donald Bogle observed the quality of Nichols' performance. He praised the interactions between Lockwood as Rice and Nichols as Norma. Bogle said that this was a better articulation of the problems faced by a black Marine than those explained by the actual character. In fact, if you Google it, you can actually see online the scene that Donald Bogle cites. But we're going to now play a little clip of it. Personal problems, Lieutenant. Well, I didn't mean this as an intrusion, Miss Bartlett. I'm having a few problems with your fiancé myself. I thought you might be able to help. They concern Private Cameron's ethnic background. 
You mean he's a Negro? Yes, ma'am. I, uh, I've been trying to reach him to talk to him. I haven't had much luck. He seems to be going on the assumption that because he's Negro and, well, I'm Caucasian. A lieutenant, if the words white and black come easier, why not use them? They're perfectly handy, acceptable references. If you stumble around embarrassed, it's just going to make both of us uncomfortable. When people are afraid to talk, it's no good at all. Thank you. That's the way I've always thought. If people would stop acting as if they were different. We are different, Mr. Rice. You mean the color of our skin is different? And that's all? Well, there are, uh, of course, sociological factors. Economics play a part in it, too. Certain groups have their own tradition and mores. <laughs> I guess I sound a little textbook, huh? Yes, you do. Lieutenant, I can't help you talk with Ernie. But he's intelligent. He'll understand the full meaning of every word and sentence you use. Only I don't know what you're going to tell him. He's been a Negro a lot longer than you've been thinking about his problem. I have a responsibility to him, Miss Bartlett. He's headed for trouble. He's angry, hostile. Lieutenant, would it be easier if he were the jolly type? You know, just a child, really. Always laughing and singing. A little lazy and irresponsible, maybe. But better than a vaudeville show when he gets to dancing and clowning. I don't think that's quite fair. Well, Ernie thinks a lot of things aren't fair. For example, we just had a fight over my working in town as a waitress. He doesn't like the idea of my doing that kind of work when I was trained for something else. I know he's a proud boy. He's a proud man, Lieutenant. I'm sorry. I thought you said words weren't that important. That's just the point you're missing. On both sides, it's about 10% logic and 90% emotion. And that's why any talking about it will do about as much good as... Well, your experiment in catharsis by good, clean athletics. It's just not that easy, Lieutenant. I don't know the answer, but I do know you're nowhere near it. Yeah, so after listening to that scene, uh, many of you probably recognize the voice of Gary Lockwood, uh, who was later, later cast as Lieutenant Commander Gary Mitchell in the second pilot for the original series, Where No Man Has Gone Before. Right, right. He plays Kirk's old buddy that gets zapped and acquires all these telekinetic and telepathic powers. Yes. I mean, which actually is one of my favorite TOS Yeah, episodes. it's an entertaining episode. And Kirk gets his shirt torn. <laughs> so there you go. Although this form of self-inflicted Censorship by a network happened in the early 60s. It shouldn't be thought of as an incident that's in the past. Um, the same situation occurred just a few seasons ago on the ABC comedy hit Blackish right. when Kenya Barris had written this episode about racial tensions at the time and ABC became skittish and declined to produce it, to, right. to broadcast it which led to him resigning from the show. All right. 
Now, now let's move on to Nichelle's Nichols' impact on the Star Trek canon itself. On September 7th, 1966, when Star Trek first premiered, Nichelle was the only black woman on television as a series regular that wasn't playing a domestic or some other subservient role. She would hold that distinction for two full seasons before she was joined by others. And nevertheless, it can't be overemphasized the importance of her playing Lieutenant Uhura, Chief Communications Officer on the USS Enterprise, the flagship of Starfleet. As such, she was the nerve center of the ship. She's handling all inter- and intra-ship communications, including the captain's orders being received from Starfleet and his imperatives to the rest of the ship's crew. Putting it plainly, Uhura was the, a senior department head with a high-level security clearance to handle sensitive communications. It can be argued that Nichelle Nichols Lieutenant Uhura is the legacy character that most embodies the progressive, inclusive, and hopeful spirit that many have attributed to Star Trek for 56 years. Throughout the original series, we saw numerous examples where neither her race or gender inhibited her opportunities. Uhura was the only consistent female character over the three seasons of TOS. Yeoman Rand, who was ill-defined as a presence on the ship, lasted only one season. Nurse Chapel had far fewer total episodes where she was prominent. By process of elimination, Uhura is the proto-Star Trek female. We will go into greater depth on this point in a minute. Also, Uhura was the most prominent person of color aboard the Enterprise. She wasn't the only one, obviously. Besides Sulu, there were individual black, Asian, and Latino crew members that would pop up periodically in an episode or two. But Uhura served as a department head, as we've said before, whereas none of the others, including Sulu, had. As stated earlier, Uhura was fourth in command after Kirk, Spock, and Scotty. She didn't actually learn this until the second season of the show. Although she never took command on the original series, she did do so in an episode of the animated series, using her position in the chain of command to justify taking the center seat. Much is made of the story of Nichelle Nichols meeting her biggest fan, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., but the main point the encounter with Dr. King highlighted is the importance of Uhura being seen weekly in American living rooms. Uhura held symbolic importance for many of the audience members of Star Trek. In its original broadcast and later on in, its, in reruns, she was able to inspire the audiences of the 60s and the 70s that the present racial strife and inequality and opportunities could be overcome eventually. Here are a few quotes from fans of Nichelle Nichols. The first is Whoopi Goldberg remembering her experiences watching the show. Not only was Uhura proof that black folks would actually make it into the future, and that was very important for us to believe back in the 1960s, 
She was beautiful, smart, and had power. People listened to her. Watching Nichelle Nichols made me confident that I could make it too. The next is a series of excerpts from an interview Sonequa Martin Green did in February. The very first time I met her, she came to the premiere of, of Star Trek Discovery and she whispered to me, uh, take care, it's yours now. Uh, <laughs> it really propelled me forward. It's like I, it's what I needed to hear from her specifically because I'm here because of her. Captain, receiving messages from a ground station. How do you think she paved the way for so many of us? Well, what gets me about her is, is the service. Mm -hmm. And the complete setting down of self. And when Dr. King said, no, 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 no. We have to see you. Yeah. We've never seen this before. We need you. She said, okay. She put down herself yeah. and dedicated the rest of her career to our progression. When she went to NASA and said, there needs to be more color here, what are you guys doing? They said, oh yeah, absolutely, but can you bring them in though? I, what did it really take for her to do that, right. you know? And, and she did it selflessly. Nichols' performance as the highly intelligent, very sociable, and multi-talented Uhura was something white America needed to witness as well. She was recognized by her Starfleet peers as an extremely competent and professional black woman who tolerated no nonsense. On more than one occasion, Spock would state that she was the most appropriate person for the complex tasks that she had been assigned. If whites could be comfortable with the possibility that this could be the case with their black co-workers, it could improve employment opportunities for people of color and workplace relationships. This was why Dr. King had placed so much importance on Nichols staying on the series. But it wasn't easy. In her autobiography, Nichols stated that many of her scenes were left on the cutting room floor. Her subplots altered or rewritten entirely to omit her. She's quoted by Daniel Bernardi in his book, Star Trek and History, Racing Toward a White Future. I'd get the first draft, the white pages, and see what Uhura had to do this week. And maybe it was a halfway decent scene or two, sometimes more. And then invariably in the next draft would come on blue pages and I'd find that Uhura's presence in the show had been cut way down. The pink pages came next and she suffered some more cuts. Then yellow, more cuts. And it finally got to the point where I had really had it. I mean, I just decided that I didn't need to read the fucking script. I mean, I know how to say Hailing frequencies open. <laughs> I know it's, we're laughing, but it's it, sad. And, and she know? had to endure this on a weekly basis. Yes. In addition, her fan mail was withheld from her by order of the network, and studio officials uh, made racist comments directly to her face. In spite of having much of her dialogue reduced to "yes sir," "no sir," or other nominal statements, Uhura more than held her own with Captain Kirk, Mr. Spock, and all the other Starfleet officers on the bridge of the Enterprise. In several episodes, Uhura revealed insights and observations that seemed to escape the others. She is the only female character that regularly interacted with 
the, the main three, Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. Finally, it's obvious to see how Nichelle Nichols' performance inspired the other black female characters that followed, such as Guyan, Michael Burnham, Rafi Musiker, Strange New World's Young Uhura, as well as even uh, Ensign Mariner and her mother, Captain Freeman of Lower Decks. But a case can be made for Uhura setting the table for other female characters as well. Not just Deanna Troy, Seven of Nine, and T'Pol, but also Captain Catherine Janeway. As we said earlier, Lieutenant Uhura is prototype Star Trek female character. More of her DNA resides in female characters in the sequel series than any other. Uhura is the only female character from TOS who displayed authority and experienced adventure. She, like Deanna, was a counselor to her fellow crew members. Her insightful observations broadened the awareness of the ship's science officer and captain on more than one occasion. Uhura's professionalism and sense of command proved that a woman could convey authority without the need to imitate a man. So it's not a stretch to see how you can go from Uhura in the late 60s presenting herself as a professional, someone who had a sense of authority and understanding and power in a position in, in, in Starfleet to eventually when we become far more aware as a society, thinking about a woman in the chair as captain. But now let's move on to some of the important Star Trek episodes from the original series, starting in season one with The Man Trap. In one of the first episodes of Star Trek, a shape-shifting alien changed into a new form to, and began talking to her in another language, which the young Lieutenant Uhura delightfully recognizes as Swahili. This episode is the first incident presenting Uhura as a multilingual Kenyan woman, which was not the kind of representation that was typically seen on screen in the late 60s. The episode presented her as an educated black woman who was in touch with her cultural heritage and remained true to her identity. Yeah, so the next episode we're going to talk about is actually the second episode, Charlie X, and one of my personal favorites. Uhura serenaded her crewmates with her angelic rendition of the song, Oh, on the Starship Enterprise, as Commander Spock played by Leonard Nimoy, accompanied her on the Vulcan lute. Uhura's musical ability was a recurring character trait throughout the show, as she could often be found humming to herself at any moment. The next episode is The Naked Time. When the Enterprise crew is intoxicated by a ship-wide contagion, Lieutenant Sulu became a topless swashbuckler. Sulu attempts a romantic display for Uhura by grabbing her and declaring his intentions to save the fair maiden. In in an iconic reply, Uhura exclaims, sorry, neither. (laughs) Uhura's rejection of this antiquated term with racist and misogynistic overtones was extremely important. The passion with which Nichols delivered this line shows that Uhura valued herself as a character that wasn't dependent on the fairness of her skin or her status as a maiden with an outdated implication of chastity. 
Next is the Squire of Gothos. Now, Uhura doesn't get a whole lot to do in this episode, in which a petulant super being toys with the crew of the Enterprise until his parents show up and scold him. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it at least gets her off the bridge for a few minutes. At one point, Trelane, played by William Campbell, transports the entire bridge crew down to his castle on the planet Gothos, where he gives Uhura the ability to play the harpsichord so that Trelane can dance with a female yeoman. Uhura seems to actually enjoy this newfound ability, cementing the character's long-standing relationship with music. But she's all business once Kurt briefly gets the upper hand on Trelane and manages to get the crew back to the ship. So in season two, the first episode that we need to acknowledge is episode three, The Changeling. When a psychopathic space probe nomad comes aboard the Enterprise, a plot that would later be reused for Star Trek The Motion Picture, one of the most disappointing experiences in Adele's life, (laughs) it, it hears Uhura singing and does not understand it. So it zaps her brain looking for information which actually wipes her memory and reverts her mind back to to that of a child. Since her mind had been erased, Uhura's only memories were that of speaking Swahili, and a linguist was reportedly brought to the set to write a few lines of language for Nichols to say. She is shown recovering slowly in sickbay, and we are happy to report that she's back to the college level by the end of the episode, and apparently back to normal in time for the next episode and her big role there. Next is the fourth episode of season two, Mirror, Mirror, another one of my favorite episodes. We're just hitting on all cylinders, aren't we? (laughs) When Kirk, McCoy, Scotty, and Uhura were sent into a mirror dimension, they encountered alternative versions of their crewmates, including a particularly flirtatious Lieutenant Sulu. Uhura was tasked with distracting Sulu while the captain put his plan of escape into action. Uhura seduced Sulu on her own terms and then confidently rejected him. This was an extremely empowering moment for women on television who would often have been viewed as objects of men's sexual advances without room to express their own sexuality on their own terms. This was the first of many Star Trek Mirror Dimension episodes in which alternate versions of the crew acted completely opposite to their normal character. Yet, even in this new environment, Uhura was able to stay true to herself. In episode 15, The Trouble with Tribbles, um, the, one of the most iconic Star Trek episodes, the Enterprise was overrun by a horde of cute, fluffy alien creatures called Tribbles. It's Lieutenant Uhura who was the one that was responsible for bringing the infestation on board after she bought the first Tribble in an alien bar. She then handed out more Tribbles to her crewmates, who were comforted by the creature's persistent purr. The fluffy little aliens soothed even Spock's emotions, 
As annoying as they were with their fast breeding habits, the Tribbles had an almost therapeutic effect on the Enterprise crew. This is one of the few episodes where Uhura was shown to have interests and desires outside of her role as Chief Communications Officer, proving that she was more than just a two-dimensional, one-sided character. Let's go now to episode 16, The Gamesters of Triskelion. Another somewhat inexplicable popular episode. This one finds Kurt, Uhura, and Chekhov captured by a group of disembodied aliens called the Providers who stage gladi gladiatorial contests among various humanoid thralls on their planet as a way to amuse themselves. Our three Starfleet officers, of course, resist their confinement and training, although they must eventually fight for their lives. This one found Uhura again in the heart of the action. Although both she and Chekhov get to do considerably less fighting than good old Kurt, we wonder if Shatner counted the fight scenes, Uhura <laughs> also must fend off an attempted rape by another thrall, which fortunately occurs off screen and which she is able to successfully beat back. Well, thank God. Yeah. Yes. In season three, we have episode nine, The Tholian Web. One of the better third season episodes finds Kirk trapped aboard a ship that has slipped into an interdimensional void. While the Enterprise must fend off an attack by an aggressive race called the Tholians as they wait for Kirk to reemerge. Not a lot of Uhura in this episode besides her usual duties, but there is one striking scene late in the episode in which she sees in her quarters for the first time in civilian clothing. Yes. In this case, a long flowing gown and a ceremonial necklace. Nichols told author David Gerald in his book, The World of Star Trek, that this was one of her favorite episodes. I enjoyed anything that was able to get me out of the uniform. Right. <laughs> Episode 10 of the third season is Plato's Stepchildren, and I'm sure most of our listeners will recognize the title. Yeah. Nichelle Nichols and William Shatner made history together by performing one of the first televised interracial kisses in this episode. Mm -hmm. Although Kirk and Uhura weren't acting under their own willpower at the time, they were being controlled by these aliens, mm -hmm. it was Uhura's declaration before the famous kiss that made this such a trailblazing moment. Uhura told Kirk, I am not afraid, implying that she was not afraid of the backlash that Star Trek, the original series, was sure to receive following this moment. Through Uhura, Nichols once again remained true to her own open-minded values and laid the path for future actors to be able to do the same. And we have one last episode to talk about, and that's from Star Trek, the animated series, series season one, episode four, The Lorelei Signal. Although Uhura was supposed to be fourth in command on the Enterprise, she was never shown doing so in the live action show. Indeed, Sulu and the reoccurring red shirt, Lieutenant Leslie, even got to sit in the chair, but not Uhura. 
That changed, however, in this animated series episode in which a race of beautiful alien women lure all the male members of the Enterprise crew to their planet in order to drain them of their life force. With the entire male crew incapacitated by these alien women, Uhura assumed command of the ship for the first time in television history as she and Nurse Chapel search for a way to free the men. According to Andy Mangle's Star Trek The Animated Series book, Nichols reportedly exclaimed during the script table read, what, you're kidding? I actually get to run this, the Enterprise? Really? <laughs> okay, so now we're going to switch gears and talk about uh, Nichelle Nichols' connection to NASA. Right. After the cancellation of Star Trek, Nichols became involved in a special project with NASA to recruit minority and female personnel for the space agency. She began this work by making an affiliation between NASA and a company which she helped to run, Women in Motion. The program was a success. Amongst those recruited were Dr. Sally Ride, the first American female astronaut, and United States Air Force Colonel Gillian Bluford, the first African-American astronaut, as well as Dr. Judith Resnick and Dr. Ronald McNair, who both flew successful missions during the space shuttle program before their deaths in the space shuttle Challenger disaster in January 28, 1986. Recruits also included Charles Bolden, the former NASA administrator and veteran of four shuttle missions, Frederick D. Gregory, a former the deputy administrator and a veteran of three shuttle missions, and Lori Garver, former deputy administrator, an enthusiastic advocate for space exploration. Nichols served from the mid-80s on the Board of Governors of the National Space Institute. Today, we call it the National Space Society, a nonprofit educational space advocacy organization. You can learn more about Nichols' involvement with the space program by watching the documentary Woman in Motion, available on the Paramount Plus streaming service. Now let's talk a little bit about her post-Star Trek acting opportunities, which were minor right. at best. Sporadic. Yeah. Now, let's be fair. All of the crew had difficulty finding work. Oh, yeah. I mean, all it's, of them. With the... With a few exceptions. With a few exceptions. All of them had some challenges on trying to maintain right. their careers. But Michelle was one who really did struggle. In the early 70s, the actress made a few guest appearances on television and appeared in a 1974 black exploitation film, Truck Turner, starring well-known thespian Isaac <laughs> okay. Hayes. And for our listeners, Gary is being sarcastic. He's he was the equivalent of Lawrence Olivier. Why why are you making that comment? Okay, and and we also do want to say that we are not recommending that film. Oh hell it's no! Awful. Oh hell no! There's nothing good about that movie at, at all. all. Even the title is stupid. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> she appeared in a supporting role in the 1983 adaptation of Anthony and Cleopatra that was also featuring a Star Trek co-star Walter Koenig 
And she starred it with Matthew Caulfield and Talia Balsam in the 1986 horror sci-fi feature, The Supernaturals. The actress played the mother of Cuba Gooding Jr.'s lead character in the 2002 film Snow Dogs and Miss Mabel in the 2005 Ice Cube comedy Are We There Yet? In 2007, Nichols played a reoccurring role on the second season of the NBC drama Heroes as Nana Dawson, matriarch of a New Orleans family devastated by Hurricane Katrina, who cares for her orphaned grandchildren and great-nephew, Micah Sanders, played by series regular Noah Gray Cobby. The following year, she appeared in the films True Loved and The Torturer. In 2017, she was nominated for a Daytime Emmy for the category Outstanding Special Guest Performer in a Drama Series for her role as Lucinda Winters in the daytime soap opera The Young and the Restless. In addition, Nichols began to do voiceover work, lending her voice to the animated series Gargoyles, and Spider-Man, she also voiced herself in Futurama. So we're going to talk about the legacy, but I want to first start off with a personal perspective. Go right ahead. So as a child in the 1960s, I lived in a blue-collar suburb of Detroit with my parents and four sisters. We had always enjoyed watching classic sci-fi films such as Forbidden Planet and The Day the Earth Stood Still, as well as series like The Outer Limits and Lost in Space. However, as a young African-American girl, you never saw anyone who looked like us uh, who would be part of the imagined future. That was until we saw Star Trek. Mm -hmm. It's hard for me to describe the joy my sisters and I experienced seeing Nichelle Nichols embody the role of Lieutenant Uhura in the first episode that aired, Man Trap. Brown skin and beautiful. Although supposedly set in the future, her hairstyle, makeup, drop earrings, and swagger were culturally akin to what was popular in the black community of the 1960s. And she could speak Swahili a gateway language to millions of people in sub-Saharan Africa. She wasn't anybody's servant and held a respected position as a senior bridge officer. Little did we know that for most subsequent shows, her dialogue would be reduced to such lines as, hailing frequencies are open, sir. But that didn't matter to us. Each week we anxiously awaited her appearance, and any word she was given to say. Through the reruns, we memorized her lines, her movements, and gestures. Through Uhura, we could fantasize being part of a Starfleet that assured our place in the future. In 1967, my sisters and I fought over the Ebony magazine in which she was featured on the cover and had a prominent article about her inside of it. Of course, at the time, I had no idea she would have left the show if it had not been for the intervention of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. However, if she had left, we would have been devastated. For I have no illusion she would have been replaced by another black woman or another person of color. 
Even in those episodes where Nichelle Nichols did not appear, she was often replaced with a white woman. Absolutely. The last four episodes of season three, she's not in them. In fact, the last episode, the person at the communication officer's console is a white woman. So in high school in the 1970s, I took advantage of an opportunity to see Miss Nichols in person at one of the earliest Star Trek conventions. This was held at Michigan State University where my oldest sister was attending college. Beautifully dressed in a white pantsuit and sporting a modest afro, she appeared with other original series members, William Shatner, DeForest Kelly, George Takei, Walter Koenig, and James Doohan. I believe all the regular cast members were there with the exception of Leonard Nimoy. Miss Nichols did not disappoint and held her own against the men. My sisters and I hung on every word that she had to say. I continued to closely follow her life and career after her Star Trek days. While the roles offered to her rarely suited her immense talent, I knew for me she would always be thought of as the most beautiful, intelligent, resourceful, and dynamic Star Trek queen in the history of the series. And you know, that's really the the tragic byproduct of racism. You have these extremely talented people who are constrained in their opportunities. You see a brief moment of it in one role or another, but they're, at, they're not able to stretch together a career where they get to showcase themselves. And that's really, that that right there is what we lose. That's out. what we lose. That's, that's right. what we that's all lose. That's the waste of racism. That is the that is the waste of racism. That's a great way of putting it. Yep. Because it denies us the opportunities to see these brilliant and talented people that's display right. their their talents at the peak. Right, at the peak of their career. And then we see them later on and they've, you know, they they've sometimes they've become embittered or they have lost a step or two and we think back on what they could have done. Yeah. And we always limit that because it's a loss. Yeah, I agree. So in closing, we'll be back in a couple of weeks before the premiere of season three of Lower Decks. At that time, we will provide an assessment of the latest Star Trek series, including Discovery, Picard, Lower Decks, Prodigy, and Strange New Worlds. But before we sign off, we would like to remind you to share a link to Age of Discovery with people you know who enjoy Star Trek as well. Until that time... Like, subscribe, and follow Star Trek Age of Discovery on Twitter and Instagram at Star Trek AOD. At Facebook at Facebook.com Star Trek AOD. You can also come to our website, Star Trek AOD.net, where we offer additional articles on Star Trek canon and interesting sidebar issues and other aspects of the show. Also, email the show at StarTrekAOD at gmail.com. But until then... Live long and prosper. What do you think ultimately her legacy is? Well, I think she's a hero. Yeah. You know? Yeah. We throw that word around a lot. Yeah. But she really is one. In real life. And that's her legacy, it's her heroism, you know, and the impact from it, um, because she changed the world. Oh.
Thank you.